Previously on The Dropout, the prosecution called its final witnesses before resting its case. Among them, a patient who received troubling results from a Theranos HIV test and a journalist whose damaging interviews with Elizabeth were played for the first time in court. All of this is stuff you can do? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so incredible. And in a literal final hour shocker, the defense called Elizabeth Holmes to the stand. My first reaction was surprise, but as I thought about the reason she might do it is she needs to convince the jury herself. And so it may be her only chance of getting acquitted, even though it runs some very high risks. This week, Elizabeth is back in the hot seat. Can she convince a jury? ABC Audio, this is The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on trial. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Episode 15, Reframing the Narrative. There was a buzz of anticipation in the air at the start of this week. By 2 a.m. on Monday, November 22nd, a line was already forming outside the courthouse in San Jose. Growing steadily throughout the cold night, it was snaking around the block by the time the doors opened around 7.30 in the morning. Dozens of journalists and curious citizens were all there to see and hear one woman testify, Elizabeth Holmes. Christian Hales, a musician from the Bay Area, was one of the many inquisitive onlookers hoping to get inside. Foolishly, I got here at 5.50. I should have come like two hours earlier. <laughs> this is my first day in a courtroom at all. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm finally becoming civically engaged. <laughs> if you're wondering what it feels like to be a part of this circus, it's kind of like a cross between an Apple new product drop and a trip to the DMV. You know why you're there, but not exactly what to expect. And there's a lot of waiting. And there are no guarantees you'll even get in. Between the courtroom and the overflow seating, there are just 79 spots. Hales was number 46. I'm a, a loyal f- listener to the dropout, and my partner works in biotech, so we've sort of been following this case for years now. Having Elizabeth testifying was the big draw for me. What's the number one thing you're hoping to see? It's just, like, hard not to get philosophical. Like, what is the state of tech? And, like, what does this say about society? Like, how we idolize entrepreneurs and, like, startups. And I think this is a wake-up call for people to be like, okay, like, being a good person still matters. We can't just, like be the tech founder and like do whatever we want and get away. I hope that's like the message that we as a society take away from this. In addition to all the media whose job it is to be there, the trial's drawn a fascinating collection of people, scientists, lawyers, students, entrepreneurs, and artists, including Danielle Baskin, who set up shop outside the courthouse. So the full look is $100, but I'll break it down. So yeah, it's it's $40 for the turtleneck. The wigs are also $40. These energy drinks are $10, and the lipstick is $10. The look Baskin is describing is the full Elizabeth Holmes package. Blonde wig, bright red lipstick, black turtleneck, and a blood energy drink. Were there any takers? You know, you're not allowed to sell merchandise on federal property. So I, the security guards asked me to shut my suitcase multiple times and to not even like take pictures of it. But you know, I think it's more performance art than a business. I wasn't expecting to uh, necessarily turn a profit, but there's still time. Who's a better businesswoman, you or Elizabeth Holmes? Uh, Most of my businesses are um, profitable and also good ideas that I believe help people. Um, Of course, myself. By the time Elizabeth arrived at court, just before 8 a.m., a wall of cameras and crews were waiting, along with some apparent fans. God bless you, girl boss. God bless you, mom. Special. They can't with it. 
She is the boss. Girl boss. Elizabeth confidently walked past. Looking forward to this? Eyes straight ahead, holding hands with her partner, Billy Evans, and her mom, Noelle. You know, like this little test of your persuasive skills? Trailing behind was an entourage, including a handful of family and friends. Team Holmes, in their sleek suits and business wear, was a stark contrast to the media crowd in our slightly disheveled layers, heavily weighted down with luggage and gear. Once inside a packed courtroom, everyone settled into their seats and waited excitedly for Elizabeth. And then we waited. And waited some more. By 10 a.m., an hour after her testimony was set to begin, the crowd was getting restless. The lead attorneys for both sides and the woman of the hour were out of sight. What exactly was going on? Without any guidance from the court, theories began to fly. Was there a plea deal? Was Elizabeth sick? We'd seen her holding her stomach outside the bathroom. Could that mean something? And then suddenly, around 10.30 a.m., the defense, the prosecutors, and Elizabeth entered the courtroom, and the proceedings began. The reason for the one-and-a-half-hour delay was never explained. My name is Elizabeth Holmes, she started. Her voice, deep, but warmer sounding and more relaxed than some of the videos we've seen in years past, like this TED Med talk. We see a world in which no one ever has to say goodbye too soon. Throughout the testimony, Elizabeth would lean into the microphone as she answered each question. Her head cocked slightly to the right, eyes focused on her attorney, Kevin Downey, with the seemingly constant hint of a smile on her face. There were moments she'd give a light laugh when searching for an exhibit in a large white binder sitting in front of her. Elizabeth seemed genuinely at ease, even excited answering some of Downey's questions. Elizabeth began by describing early iterations of her technology, starting with Theranos' first device, telling the court it was used in a Novartis study in 2006. According to Elizabeth, at the time, Theranos encountered a significant challenge with the device. The adhesive holding the cartridge together loosened when it was exposed to certain pressure, which meant that if we were going to be shipping these cartridges all over the place, we had a problem, she testified. What did you do in response to that problem, asked Downey. We went back to the table with our engineers and scientists and tried to figure out how to fix it, said Elizabeth. And were you able to develop a solution ultimately to that problem, Downey asked. We did, said Elizabeth, her smile growing wider. A year later, towards the end of 2007, Elizabeth explained the company had completed its Theranos 3.0 device, which she testified would ultimately be used in connection with many of Theranos' partnerships with pharmaceutical companies. Elizabeth went on to tell the court how important she thought her idea was. We thought this was a really big idea, she testified, because the human processing that's often required with testing would not be required. And as a result, it could cut out the error in traditional lab testing, and it could be programmed to run any protocol on one device. Elizabeth said she believed it could be used by pharmaceutical companies to help get better insight into how a drug would work and how to help speed the amount of time that it would take to run a study. Santa Clara University law professor Ellen Kreitzberg says the defense was strategic in establishing Elizabeth's state of mind right off the top. The difficulty with charges like wire fraud is it really hinges on the intent of the person charged, here the intent of Elizabeth Holmes. So the government has to prove that she made representations that she knew to be false. And they've done that pretty effectively. But the harder part, and it's a real uphill climb, is they have to prove that the reason she made those misrepresentations was that she intended to defraud either the investors or the patients, depending on which count. The defense, both by the force of her personality and all the things that she's saying about what happened, is trying to show she's either naive, she's acting in good faith, she was well-intentioned, and as she said numerous times, she truly believed in the technology. Another strategic choice on the part of the defense making Ian Gibbons a major focus in Elizabeth's testimony. 
Dr. Gibbons was named chief scientist at Theranos in 2005, two years after he joined the company. He was an extremely bright guy with a bunch of Cambridge degrees and nearly 200 patents to his name. And he'd been recommended to the company by Theranos board member Channing Robertson, Elizabeth's former Stanford professor and number one cheerleader. But these are details the court never actually heard about Dr. Gibbons or that he later died by suicide after a history of depression, allegedly compounded by what his widow said was horrible mistreatment by Theranos and Elizabeth. You might recall Rochelle Gibbons from season one when we spoke to her about Dr. Gibbons' death. How many years had he worked at Theranos? Since 2003, 10 years. 10 years he worked at Theranos. Yeah. Did they send flowers? No, I expected, I fully expected something from them. And they didn't do anything. What has this done to your life? It's, at the worst, it's, come close to ending it. But, I mean, it's just, I can't. People like that should be in jail. They should uh, not be allowed to destroy people's lives. Professor Kreitzberg says these aren't details you'll hear at this trial. I am certain the judge would never allow any evidence about the suicide into the courtroom. But she talks about relying on a lot of things he said to her as telling her how these tests were working and these issues were being validated. And yet that's not clear at all that that's what Dr. Gibbons was saying. So it will be interesting to see what the government's going to be allowed to do on cross-examination with that. Downey took Elizabeth through, in great detail, a report she received from Dr. Gibbons in 2008, concluding with her assessment of what it all meant. What, if anything, did you take away from Dr. Gibbons' presentation, asked Downey. I took away that we were hitting the design goals and that the system was performing in a way that was excellent in clinical sites, Elizabeth said. Downey later brought up a second report written by Dr. Gibbons in early 2010. This report was about the steps Theranos was taking to develop the next iteration of its technology, a machine yet to be completed called the 4.0. As a result of the presentation that you received in February 2010 regarding Theranos' technology, what did you understand that the technology could do with respect to blood tests? He asked. I understood that the 4 Series could do any blood test, Elizabeth said. I found the whole Ian Gibbons thing so tragic, really. Dr. Ann Copsill is a retired former biotech industry executive with a PhD in chemical engineering from Stanford. You first met her a few episodes back. She's been following Elizabeth's story from early days and even nearly worked with her as a consultant to Theranos. Dr. Copsill has been attending the trial regularly and reviewing the evidence, and we caught up with her outside the courthouse. That 4.0 document was actually a set of specs and a wish list. I looked at the whole thing last night. It's 112 pages. He has many cases where they need to make inventions. They don't know how to do it. They're considering licensing in technology from other companies. So um, there was still a lot of work to do. That document makes it clear. And I was struck by the way that they were framing this mm. Theranos 4.0 document. If you knew that there was no actual device that had been created, you would know that that was this wish list, that it was about what the future could hold, not about what had already been created. Yes, I agree with you. They are very good at putting things out that are future, but making it sound like it's about done or about ready to go. Noticeably absent from any of Elizabeth's testimony about Dr. Gibbons were references to his deep concerns about Theranos' technology. Those emerged later as it looked increasingly likely the tests were going live inside Walgreens, something his widow, Rochelle Gibbons, told us about. He told me that they were about to roll out these things in Walgreens. And I said, what do they have to roll out? And he said, they don't have anything to roll out. And, you know, it's tremendously upsetting to him. Ian felt like people's lives were on the balance and... Uh, along with his own scientific integrity, 
so he was just deeply distraught. And he went to talk to Channing in confidence. And um, he told Elizabeth about it, and she fired him on the spot. Channing told Elizabeth. Yeah. And she fired Ian on the spot. But without Dr. Gibbons himself available to take the stand, how might the government handle this part of Elizabeth's testimony in the Crofts? Here's Professor Kreitzberg. Well, they certainly can show that he's passed away. And I wondered whether they would want the jury to be informed of that information to explain why they haven't called him. So this is going to be a very tricky evidentiary area. Because the government didn't object when his name was first raised, I have to believe there's been some discussions outside the presence of the jury about this issue. In addition to focusing on the role of Dr. Gibbons, another big theme of Downey's on Monday was Elizabeth's partnerships, like with the Department of Defense. Something she ultimately acknowledged never materialized, though you had to listen very carefully to hear this. Defense attorney Downey began by asking Elizabeth, what programs did Theranos attempt to partner with the Department of Defense on in 2008 and 2009? Attempt being the key word here. Elizabeth went through these attempted partnerships in great detail. There were several, she said. One was seeing whether there were markers in the blood that could predict PTSD. Another was associated with diabetes management. Another was dealing with infection and trauma patients and seeing if you could better predict when that infection hit the bloodstream and people were going to get really sick. All these attempts sounded really promising. But before finding out whether any were actually consummated, Downey said he wanted to take a step back. He wanted to know which division at the DOD Elizabeth had spoken to. It was something called Tatric. He then spent multiple minutes digging into the minutiae. Finally, Downey asked, was Theranos successful in forming a partnership with Tatric in 2008 and 2009? By the time Downey posed the question, it may have been difficult to remember what it was even about the Department of Defense. But it took Elizabeth just one word to answer. No, she said. Theranos was not successful in forming a partnership with the DOD. There is some kernel of truth to the things that she said. So, for example, the government presented extensive evidence that she kept telling her investors she had contracts with the Department of Defense. And we learned that she did have a relationship with people there, And so there is something there, but it's not what she told people. And this is where it'll be very hard for the jury to parse that out. Will they find that the misrepresentations were not significant or not intentional because they were only a little bit off? Or will they accept the government's argument that her misrepresentations went to the heart of the issue? The last big theme of Monday's testimony was Elizabeth's attempts at partnerships with pharmaceutical companies, Novartis, AstraZeneca, Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Centicar, GlaxoSmithKline, Celgene, Shearing Plow, Pfizer. It was a who's who of big pharma. Downey showed the court a slide labeled completed successes that Elizabeth testified came from her team and highlighted studies with different pharmaceutical companies. Elizabeth went over all these supposed successes in excruciating detail, ticking through each pharma relationship, drilling down on the conversations, evaluations, and work Theranos did between 2008 and 2009. For example, Elizabeth said the relationship with Novartis led to Theranos devices being deployed for evaluation in Europe. And with a smile on her face, she told the court she remembered Theranos' performance being really good. Of Bristol-Myers Squibb, Elizabeth recounted that they agreed to do a study together in 2008 or so. But as of 2010, Theranos had begun to focus on retail, so they never got around to doing any clinical study as a result of the conversations. The implication, the business dried up, not because Theranos wasn't successful, but because the company was shifting its goals. Brian Roberts, a biotech investor and venture capitalist, says this laundry list of pharma relationships may sound good to a jury, but these early conversations don't necessarily amount to much in the long run. 
How common would these types of conversations be between a young startup company and pharma companies? All the time. And there are legions of people at each of these large companies who are not doing their job if they're not talking to small companies. That's their sole professional purpose in life. So it sounds as though they did a very good job getting various pharmaceutical companies to test out their technology. It does not sound as though they got much traction actually creating any business relationship. And so, in fact, talking to pharma companies is not any particular indicator of success or triumph, but all they're doing is trying to understand whether or not some new technology stacks up to the stuff that they're using now. Later, the prosecution talked about Theranos' relationship with Shearing Plow, the subject of some tense testimony earlier in the trial. Did Theranos contract with Shearing Plow? Yes, said Elizabeth, her grin returning. We did a validation for Shearing Plow. It was then explained that Shearing Plow was eventually acquired by Merck. But according to Elizabeth, it looked like Theranos might still continue the work after the transition. And what gave Elizabeth this impression? Feedback from another Theranos colleague about communications with Constance Cullen, a witness the prosecution called earlier in the trial. Downey asked Elizabeth to take the court through an email from that colleague, her assistant, Carolyn Belkenhall. Elizabeth told the court she took the communication to mean that Dr. Cullen was telling us that she wanted to have our scientists in touch and that she had talked about that work within Merck and that they were intrigued by it. Elizabeth's assistant concluded the email writing that calling Dr. Cullen every single morning for the last three weeks finally paid off. But this part of the email wasn't read aloud in court. Did you understand that the feedback was that Dr. Cullen had a favorable view of Theranos' technology, Downey asked. I did, Elizabeth replied. Of course, when we heard from Dr. Cullen previously in the trial, she said she had in fact not been impressed with the Theranos technology and that, swapped with work associated with the Merck merger, she eventually sort of brushed off communication with Elizabeth. Downey next turned to Celgene. Was there a contract between Celgene and Theranos, Downey asked. Yes, said Elizabeth. And did you believe that that work constituted a validation of the technology? I did. Again, when we heard from Celgene scientist Vicki Sung earlier in the trial, she had testified that when conducting the study, Celgene started noticing more than 14% of Theranos samples weren't producing usable results. Was this good or bad, the prosecution asked at the time. Bad, Sung had answered. Sung testified Celgene ultimately decided not to move forward when they couldn't validate Theranos' technology. But Elizabeth didn't address that in her testimony. Finally, there was Pfizer, the pharma giant that's been a hot topic throughout this trial. Elizabeth described how Theranos had a contract with Pfizer to perform a study to develop certain tests that were useful in cancer patients. Theranos had prepared a report on the work, but as far as Elizabeth could remember, she didn't get feedback on it from Pfizer. And as we know, a clinical trial with Pfizer never came to be. This detail, you'll notice a theme here, wasn't addressed. By the end of Monday, Professor Kreitzberg says the defense had accomplished a lot, painting Elizabeth as a true believer. Her testimony encapsulated the, I had a vision, I truly believed it, I always acted in good faith, and I would never have deceived anyone. Did you believe it? The jury is not supposed to determine, did they believe her testimony? Because that's really asking, did she prove that she is innocent? And the jury's still supposed to say, did the government prove that she's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? So the defense has to really artfully extract what she said to say, here's a reason to doubt. Maybe you think it's possible that she defrauded. Maybe it's even probable that she intended to defraud. But if you are concerned and you're thinking, well, maybe she really is a good person. Maybe she just made some mistakes. 
when you question it that way, you have to find her not guilty. This is Brad Milkey, host of ABC's daily news podcast, Start Here. More dropout in a minute, but first. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. A quick reminder, if you're looking for a daily recap of the day's news, including updates on the Elizabeth Holmes trial, join me over on Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Again, that's Start Here, available wherever you listen. Unlike Monday's delay, Elizabeth kicked off Tuesday's testimony right on time, walking up to the stand at 9 a.m. on the dot, removing her mask and revealing that same polite smile and relaxed look on her face. It wasn't long before defense attorney Kevin Downey began to focus yet again on Dr. Ian Gibbons. Downey also re-referenced Theranos' lack of continued business with pharmaceutical companies, reframing it as a pivot in the company's business model. That pivot led to Theranos' retail relationship with Walgreens. Downey began by asking Elizabeth about her initial meetings with the drugstore chain. For the first time in her testimony, Downey specifically addressed the claim we've now heard so many times throughout this trial, that Theranos systems have been comprehensively validated over the course of the last seven years by 10 of the 15 largest pharmaceutical companies. Downey asked Elizabeth what she meant to convey when she said that. Elizabeth answered without hesitation that our systems, chemistries, cartridges, devices, software, have been tested against standards by these companies. But is that how a potential investor might understand it? Not exactly, according to biotech venture capitalist Brian Roberts. Would you define it as validation as an investor? No, I would not. Not without seeing the specifics and the breadth of the data. And frankly, validation in a pilot study carries a lot less weight if the company that you are validating with then doesn't adopt your technology broadly. Downey then turned to the elephant in the courtroom, the two doctored reports with Pfizer and Shearing Plow logos up top. Who added the logos of those companies to the top of those documents? I did, Elizabeth replied confidently. It was a mic drop moment. As Elizabeth answered, the whole courtroom took notice. There was audible shifting in seats, and it got loud with the sound of clicking keyboards increasing significantly. When did you do that? asked Downey. Just before sending them to Walgreens, she said. Why did you do that? Because this work was done in partnership with those companies, and I was trying to convey that, she answered. Around this moment, there were audible sighs from the audience of spectators, even some eye rolls. You've heard testimony from witnesses in this case that they thought that the reports that you sent had been prepared by those pharmaceutical companies. Do you recall that, Downey asked? I do, Elizabeth said. Did you intend to give that impression when you transmitted those reports to Walgreens? No, but I've heard that testimony in this case, and I wish I had done it differently. Instead of a smile here, Elizabeth had replaced it with a look of deep concern. By the way, we heard a similar excuse from Elizabeth in her SEC deposition. Why did you include these reports in investor materials? Um, in general, we were 
trying to communicate with investors about the broad potential of the technology. So in other words, the reports, in a way, gave credibility to uh, the functionality and the accuracy of Theranos's manufactured devices. I, I don't, I've never thought about it like that. Were you ever concerned that uh, the title and the fact that these reports were included in the binder would give the impression to potential investors that these pharmaceutical companies had drafted these reports and that Theranos had not drafted them? No. But how might Elizabeth's explanation play with the jury? Here's what Professor Kreitzberg thinks. I think her explanation of even I wanted to show our partnership when those partners were disavowing the report or disagreeing with it or just said we're not even involved in it just doesn't ring true. So that piece of evidence, which I thought was one of the strongest for the government, remains incredibly strong in spite of that explanation. It was one of the weaker parts of the explanation that she's been given for all the other factors presented at trial. Downey then turned to the Walgreens due diligence. Do you recall at some point that Walgreens said that it wanted to have the technology that Theranos had been using evaluated by scientists at Johns Hopkins, he asked. I do, said Elizabeth. And was that something that Theranos was willing to do? Yes, she said. Elizabeth testified that the team at Johns Hopkins was asked to evaluate Theranos' invention and its capabilities. Downey asked Elizabeth to describe her conversations with Hopkins ahead of this evaluation. We had a very detailed discussion about different aspects of the technology designs and the data itself, she said. The experts from Hopkins asked a lot of questions about the data and about our designs, our methods for developing new tests, and how we went about that, Elizabeth said. And then after a beat, she added, and we answered them. Following that meeting, Johns Hopkins prepared a report for Walgreens, which Downey read aloud to the court. The technology is novel and sound. It can accurately run a wide range of routine and special assays, he said. Elizabeth shared with a smile on her face that our team was really excited about this. These were some of the best laboratory experts in the world, and we had sent them binders of material to review before our meeting. We had gone through every aspect of our invention in detail, and getting this kind of feedback was amazing. Keep in mind, Johns Hopkins did not actually view a Theranos device. Additionally, what Downey didn't read aloud to the court might end up coming back at the cross-examination. At the bottom of the report, there was a clear disclaimer. The materials provided in no way signify an endorsement by Johns Hopkins Medicine to any product or service. I have to assume that the government is going to pick up the pieces of the Johns Hopkins report that was not elicited in direct examination and that those issues with the Johns Hopkins not acknowledging or supporting the technology is going to be brought out in the government's rebuttal case. After the Johns Hopkins report, Walgreens in 2010 agreed to move forward with Theranos. Originally, the hope was to have Theranos devices inside drugstores to process tests on site, but that would have required FDA approvals for both the device and every test it was running, something Theranos didn't have. So instead, Theranos created a two-phase rollout with Walgreens. In phase one, they'd ship tests to a central lab in Palo Alto and process there. And then in phase two, they'd test in stores, once all regulations were met. Elizabeth testified that it was Walgreens that made the choice to do that. Walgreens had a lot of regulatory lawyers and experts, and they ultimately decided that we should not put the devices in the store because of FDA and CMS reasons, but instead that we should be a central lab where samples are shipped, she said. And did Theranos agree that that was necessary, Downey asked? Our lawyers had different opinions, but we agreed to do what Walgreens wanted, Elizabeth said. Elizabeth also told the court she expected phase one to be incredibly short. With a two-phased approach in place, Elizabeth testified Theranos scientists went to work. Dr. Daniel Young was in charge of getting ready for the Walgreens launch, and Dr. Ian Gibbons was overseeing the groups who were developing the blood tests. But it wasn't exactly smooth sailing. What was your understanding of the challenges during that period, asked Downey. 
It's never smooth. There are always challenges. We were constantly working to make sure we had the right components in the device to handle all the tests that were ultimately going to be the test list for retail. That meant there was a lot of changes to the device, she said. Elizabeth testified that as time went on, the physical layout of the central lab was proving to be an issue because Theranos 4.0 was supposed to be a point-of-care device. Elizabeth said the building housing all these little machines didn't have enough power to run them all at once. To put this many devices in a single room like that would require very significant adjustments to the building for power and for heat, she testified. They give off a huge amount of heat, she said. Additionally, with the samples all showing up at the same time, it would create a backlog. Did you begin at a certain point to consider it potentially impractical for these devices to be the means by which blood tests would be run in that central lab, Downey asked? Yes, said Elizabeth. Elizabeth testified she and the team started to try to find a solution, a way to run small samples without using Theranos' 4.0 machine. That solution was to run the tests on modified third-party devices. As Elizabeth explained to the court, Theranos scientists and engineers rigged the Siemens Advia and the Becton Dickinson Fortessa devices, two machines built by outside companies to be able to run Theranos's small samples. Remember, it's something PFM's Brian Grossman, who invested $100 million in Theranos, testified last week that had he known, he would have been concerned given those machines were not FDA approved to run small samples. There's been testimony from a number of witnesses in the case that they were not aware that Theranos was running blood samples on these kinds of platforms. Do you recall that? Downey asked. I do, Elizabeth said. Did Theranos publicly disclose that it was operating these third-party devices, he asked. No, she said. Did you tell Walgreens that you were running the tests on these modified commercial platforms? Not in this way, Elizabeth said. Why not? Downey asked. Because this was an invention that we understood from our counsel we had to protect as a trade secret. And that if we disclosed that information, we would lose trade secret protection. This explanation seemed unbelievable to venture capitalist Brian Roberts. What do you make of the fact that Elizabeth says the trade secret was the fact that Theranos was running these tests on third-party machines? That's nuts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though... It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Elizabeth also testified her high-profile board of directors was in favor of keeping the third-party information a trade secret. Downey asked Elizabeth to list the members— Former Secretaries of State George Shultz and Dr. Henry Kissinger, former CEO of Wells Fargo Dick Kovacevic, General James Mattis, Admiral Gary Ruffhead, former Senator Sam Nunn, and former Secretary of Defense Dr. Bill Perry, she testified. All the board members received a salary of $150,000 a year, as well as half a million shares in the company, she explained. And then some of them, including Kissinger, received a consulting salary of half a million dollars on top of that. It was an anecdote with a purpose, according to Professor Kreitzberg. The testimony again being brought out about how much the board of directors was getting, and then in addition, these consulting fees, and if Kissinger got a half million dollars, probably others of them did too, seems again to be blaming, in this case, not victims, but blaming the people who were advising her. 
that they were making a whole lot of money and weren't really doing their due diligence or their responsibility to find the answers and direct her to them. It seemed to me, again, part of the everyone is at fault except Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know how effective that would necessarily be, except that everyone in this case seems to have a lot of money, and that's not a very appealing feature to a jury in in this county. Elizabeth then recounted an October 8th, 2013 meeting just after the Walgreens launch. In the minutes entered into evidence, there's a reference to trade secret elements. One of our board members, Senator Nunn, had been on the Coca-Cola board, Elizabeth testified, and he talked with us about the Coca-Cola formula and how it was protected as a trade secret and some of the measures that went into protecting trade secrets so that people didn't find out about the invention. We asked biotech investor Brian Roberts what he thought of the comparison Elizabeth cited. So sure, the ingredients in Coke are a trade secret. What Coke does not do is go buy a whole trailer full of Pepsi and put it in Coke cans. Theranos, what they're actually doing is like the Wizard of Oz going behind the green curtain and using somebody else's machine. Elizabeth claimed in her testimony that if any companies knew Theranos was using modified third-party devices, it could put Theranos out of business. Elizabeth testified she did disclose to the FDA that her company was running samples on modified devices at Theranos because the FDA assured we could have trade secret protection of the information that we were disclosing, that it would not be shared publicly, she said. It's worth noting that neither Elizabeth nor Downey in this testimony specified whether Theranos told the FDA it was running patient samples in the clinical setting on these third-party machines. What's interesting is from other information not brought in at this trial, we've actually seen some of the very ugly lengths that the Theranos lawyers and others went to in order to try and protect information from getting out. The jury's not going to hear that part of a trade secret protection issue. They're only going to hear what's been brought into court, which is we couldn't tell anyone. Now, Theranos has been very good about non-disclosure agreements, and there's been no questioning or talking about what about a non-disclosure agreement to a select group of your investors to talk about what your technology was doing and what it wasn't doing, and so that they could be making their decisions more accurately. Downey then continued to the 2013 Walgreens launch, asking Elizabeth who at Theranos was responsible for making the decision whether a test was clinically validated and ready to go. The lab director, she said. Was that Dr. Rosendorf as of August 2013, Downey asked? Elizabeth confirmed it was. But remember, Dr. Rosendorf testified at times he felt pressure from Elizabeth to sign off on validation reports. Did you ever pressure Dr. Rosendorf to clinically validate tests that he did not want to clinically validate? Downey asked. No, said Elizabeth. Did you ever pressure anyone at Theranos to sign off on a clinical or CLIA validation where they did not want to sign off? Absolutely not, Elizabeth said. Did you have the training to make a decision as to whether or not an assay was valid for clinical use? He asked. No, Elizabeth said. Are you aware of any assay being used in the clinical laboratory at Theranos that was not validated and approved by the laboratory director? I am not, she said. Would you have permitted that? No, Elizabeth concluded. Downey addressed the testimony by Dr. Rosendorf about his concerns certain tests weren't running accurately days before the Walgreens launch. To the extent that there were those concerns, why didn't Theranos delay its commercial launch? Downey asked. We did delay the validation of any test of which there was a concern, Elizabeth said. Did you impose any deadline by which assays had to be validated? No, she said. Downey also brought up the marketing materials that were used by Theranos around the launch. Did you personally research or verify every statement made in those marketing materials? He asked Elizabeth. No, she said. Did you ever approve any marketing materials that you thought were inaccurate? He asked. No. Downey highlighted that prior to launching with Walgreens, Theranos was inexperienced with marketing and branding. 
What was the public presence of Theranos in the years 2004 to 2013? It was almost nothing, Elizabeth said. Elizabeth told the court she hired marketing firm Shiat Day, whom you've heard about in previous episodes. I understood that they were one of the best marketing firms, that they had worked with companies like Apple on the launch of many different products and created amazing advertisements. She said her company asked for their help in figuring out how to introduce Theranos to the world and paid them millions of dollars for this. But it wasn't just shy at day. Elizabeth said Theranos engaged several firms around the launch, including a PR marketing firm called Grow, which helped build Theranos their brand advise on media appearances, and communicate with media in general for the company. In fact, Elizabeth said it was on the advice of PR firm Grow that Theranos announced their partnership with Walgreens via the Wall Street Journal Joe Rago op-ed article. It's a piece that's come up a bunch throughout the trial, with allegations that it contained false and misleading claims about Theranos and its technology. Elizabeth testified it was Grow and a lot of others too, who worked with Rago preparing the article. Did he speak with board members, Downey asked. Yes, said Elizabeth. Did he speak with other employees of the company? Yes. Did Theranos have an opportunity to review his article before it was published? Yes. Were you the only person at Theranos who reviewed that draft of Mr. Rago's article? No, Elizabeth said. It is, by the way, highly uncommon and largely against standard journalistic policy for journalists to share their work with sources before publishing. It's also worth noting that Joe Rago, like Dr. Gibbons, is also deceased and unable to speak to these claims. We reached out to the Wall Street Journal for comment and didn't receive a response. Downey, continuing to work his way through the Walgreens timeline, made the point that after the launch, Theranos kept pursuing approval with the FDA for its 4.0 device, even though the company wasn't using it at the drugstore chain. What he left out was that Theranos would only be successful in getting approval for one test, and the majority of these efforts would amount to nothing. Downey then walked Elizabeth through the anticipated nationwide rollout in Walgreens, Theranos only made it into 41 of Walgreens' more than 8,000 locations. But did Elizabeth realize at the time there were issues? In the first half of 2014, what did you understand about how that rollout between Walgreens and Theranos was going? I understood it was going well, she said. Was there ever a time that you understood by the end of 2014 that Walgreens would not agree to open additional Theranos service centers? There was not, she said. It was a strange answer, considering the text messages Sonny Belwani had sent Elizabeth back in late 2014, which we learned about in Elizabeth's deposition with the SEC. There's an SMS message on November 19th, 2014, and it appears to be from Sonny Belwani to yourself. Um, and he says, we can't scale with WAG. And WAG, you understand, is Walgreens. Yes. Okay. And then in his next text message, he says, they are terrible and we need uh, SWY and CVS. Do you understand SWY to be Safeway? Yes. And then you respond, it is time. Let's get SWY done this week. We can do it. As it turned out, they couldn't do it. Not that week or any other. As we now know, Theranos devices never made it into Safeway. As for Sonny Balwani, his name rarely came up in Elizabeth's testimony this week, but Downey did mention Sonny in reference to Safeway. Who at Theranos was principally responsible for shepherding that financial due diligence in the period before the Safeway agreement was signed? Sonny Balwani was, Elizabeth said. Sonny's name also came up when Downey asked Elizabeth about Brian Grossman and PFM's $100 million investment and a highly specific window of time. Who was the primary contact between PFM and Theranos in the period between the second meeting and the time of PFM's investment? It was Sonny, according to Elizabeth. But by the end of Elizabeth's testimony that day, none of the abuse allegations against Sonny came up. There weren't even hints there was any abuse. 
I'm sure the defense very intentionally did not raise it before the Thanksgiving break because they could have led with that information and put it right out there right away. And it turns out that was exactly the plan. Coming up on the next episode of The Dropout, Elizabeth fights back tears on the stand, telling the court she was raped at Stanford and dropped out to pour herself into building a company. Plus, in the most jaw-dropping moment of the trial yet, Elizabeth does in fact turn her testimony to claim she was in an emotional and physically abusive relationship with Sonny, allegations he's firmly denied. Tune in next Tuesday for all the bombshell details. Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani did not respond or decline to comment for this podcast. Some material, including court depositions, were edited for clarity and time. The Dropout Elizabeth Holmes on Trial is written and reported by Victoria Thompson, Taylor Dunn, and me. Victoria is the executive producer. Taylor and I are producers. For ABC Audio, Susie Liu is producer and Madeline Wood and Marwa Mwaki are associate producers. Dia Athen and Miles Cohen are our court producers. For ABC's business unit, our associate producer is Victor Ordonez and our production assistant is Lane Wynn. Mixing and scoring is by Susie Liu and Evan Viola. Evan also composed the music for The Dropout. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY and Cedric Honstadt. For ABC Audio, Liz Alessi is executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ian Rosenberg, Eric Avram, and Stacia Dashishku. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.